Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, and we are all in person today, which is a real treat. I've got around my table here David French, Jonah Goldberg, and Declan Garvey, of course, our uh, fantasy football commissioner. We obviously have so much to talk about. It was election day last night, so what we learned in Virginia, what other races ended up mattering, how it's going to affect the Democrats, and how it's going to affect the Republicans... Let's start at the very beginning, as we were taught by Julie Andrews. Jonah, what did we learn in Virginia? We learned that uh, a Republican candidate doesn't have to fully embrace Donald Trump to win, even in a blue state. We learned that among some subset, I mean, so I listened to the Emergency 538 podcast this morning at 6 a.m., because <laughs> that's the kind of life I've chosen for some reason. <laughs> And I listen to it at 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something you can afford to do in your 20s. So I, uh, um, I don't like all of the monocausal explanations for this. I think there, there are a bunch of explanations for it. I think last night it was amazeballs, to use a term from political science, uh, that MSNBC locked into the idea it was just simply race card racism more racial racism and race cardism of racial race cards. And um, I think you can say that that was at work in some ways and in some places, but for the most part, um, it shows that candidates matter. It shows that the, some of the old rules of rules of thumb of politics, the sort of, what do they call it? The thermostatic nature of elections is that Virginia by a rule of thumb should have gone for the party of not the incumbent president. And it did. And that a lot of the things that people thought had said the old rules don't apply anymore uh, weren't as powerful. Uh, people are going to be chewing this for a long time. But it, it, I think it shows that suburban, the suburban voters who uh, repelled against Trump uh, did not necessarily lose all of their normal sort of Republican inclinations. And that issues like schools still really matter. Declan, what did you learn last night? I learned a lot of the same things that Jonah did. Uh, you know, <laughs> Correct <listening>. answer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I think I also learned that uh, many of the fundamentals of this race, as Jonah mentioned, were heavily tilted in the Republicans' favor. And I think that the conventional wisdom didn't reflect that because there is kind of an idea that Trump was president for four years and the Republican Party is going to pay a price for that at some point, has to pay a price for that at some point. Um, and it might just not. And it might not in 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 these kinds of races. And in a way that, um, you know, Yunkin, I'm particularly interested, at, and I'm sure there will be more reporting about this. Hopefully I can do more reporting about this, about the the interpersonal relationship between Yunkin and Trump and how he how he kind of kept I, I'm I'm serious because the, you know, the coverage every day for the past month or two months has been Yunkin is stiff arming Trump. Yunkin is keeping him away from the the campaign. And and Trump kind of let that happen. Obviously, he held a, a tele-town rally uh, or tele-town hall rally or, or voter call something earlier this week. Didn't uh, didn't attend any events with with Yunkin and and kind of let him be off on his own and and not interfere in the race. Um, I think the fact that Trump was not on Twitter helped Yunkin a phenomenal amount. Right. Um, I think that the uh, the idea that Yunkin can kind of keep Trump's voters while also winning back the suburbs is is something that we hadn't really seen tested in in a real way post Trump's presidency. Um, and I, and it'll be curious to see uh, whether Trump allows this kind of candidate to run a similar race again going into the midterms if, if they if he's okay with candidates saying i don't need you um i'm not going to insult you every day i'm not going to you know bring up january 6th every day but i'm not going to be praising you effusively i'm not going to be uh referencing how great your musk is <laughs> and uh and can you just let me do that and let me win my race and and if trump says yes to that then there's a path forward here for the republicans we'll see if if that continues 
David. Sarah. All right. Let's break this down a little. As of this summer, July, McAuliffe was way ahead. Yep. Double digits in some polls, yep. high single digits, an insurmountable lead, it appeared. Uh, nobody knew who Yunkin was. Um, and while we talk about how the Virginia governor seat goes to the opposing White House parties, I mean, yes and no. It was a swing state for a long time, and now it's not really a swing state. So to me, that's a, a bit of a mischaracterization right. of what we know about Virginia. What causes this race to tip in the first place? Well, I mean, so many things. So if you're going back to June, July, this is pre-Afghanistan. So Afghanistan happens. And as we know, some things, it, you can over-nationalize things, but you can also under-nationalize things. There's absolutely no question that the sort of democratic momentum in Washington began to fall off a cliff over the summer. I mean, you can just see it in Biden's approval ratings, the disaster in Afghanistan, the absolute inability to take a win on the bipartisan infrastructure plan that they had that they had negotiated in the Senate with the progressives in the House. Like, no, 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 we need trillions and trillions of dollars of more spending. And where it just looks like there's disarray, because guess what? There is disarray. And then you're beginning to have supply chain problems building. People can't get the things that they want. Then on top of that, you have this whole issue of schools unfolding, where I think what we're going to overinterpret the CRT piece of this, and we're going to totally under, agree with that. Totally we're gonna, agree. We're going to underinterpret this sort of really basic thing of, well, did I have confidence my kids were going to be in school this far into the pandemic when we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt because most school districts around the country have been open have been operating for months and months and and this is still up in the air are you kidding me with this and then you have terry mcauliffe who in the face of all of this foment does such genius things as sort of saying well you know minimizing the role of parents in education and then what was it the last day or so he campaigns with randy weingarten from the american federation of teachers i mean really really in the midst of this enormous amount of discontent with the way that schools have been run in the face of McAuliffe minimizing the role of parents, he brings in the one person who probably nationally is more symbolic than anyone else in the whole country about neglecting parental concerns and campaigns with her. So all of these things together add up. And look, let's just put to rest this idea that this was some sort of racist backlash in Virginia. I mean, this is a state that went for Obama in 08. It went for Obama in 2012. It went for Clinton in 2016 went from for Biden in 2020 by 10 whole points. So to sort of say that this is a racist backlash, I mean, come on, come on. No, 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 no. That's not the explanation for this. Yeah. So three, three things for me. One, um, record turnout means that it was not simply that McAuliffe's base stayed home, that he didn't energize right. the base enough. It was people switching their vote who voted for Biden, probably voted for Obama switching their vote and voting for Yunkin. Um, and so to your point, you're calling your own voters racist then. Right. Um, and I think that actually gets to sort of a problem with this whole thing. If a parent complained that they didn't know what their kid was being taught at school or they didn't like what they were being taught at school, they were told that they were simply racist by McAuliffe, which is obviously a problem. Or an idiot. Like, you don't, cause remember the or you said, don't understand. Critical race theory doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. They literally would say that over and over again. You yeah. Know, it was like, that, oh, that's a myth. It's just not true. And you know? while I tend to agree that critical race theory is not being taught in Fairfax County elementary schools. If that's your argument back to these parents, you've not been listening to what they're saying. They say that they don't like what the kid is being taught. Whether they label that CRT or not isn't the point. And telling them that their concern is racist or what um, when President Obama came to speak and he said it was these trumped up culture war issues dismissing their concern entirely. And so, look, it's I am don't ever read too much into the exit polls, but I don't think there's going to be any question that there was a big swing with suburban women. Why? Because um, they were given permission to look for another candidate in August yep. when Afghanistan happened and there was like incompetence. Delta uh, surge was happening again. So then they're looking around. They're shopping a little. Um, you have... 
their children in Fairfax County, this is the largest plurality of voters in the state in a single county, and it's not even close. They have about 13% of the voters in the state in Fairfax County. The next highest is 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically like all there's about three or four tied at 5%. Loudoun County is one of them, which we've talked about a lot. Uh, Fairfax County schools were not only closed for the spring of the pandemic, they were closed the whole next school year. That has repercussions throughout yes. the economy and people saying like, oh, well, um, first of all, women have to leave the workforce because they're the ones who are going to have to stay home with these kids now who are doing remote learning. Remote learning is not good for their kids. Um, and then they're also starting to see what their kids are being taught. And they've got the time to do so because they're not in school and in work. And so then when McAuliffe, you know, basically dismisses their concerns about the schools being closed, dismisses their concerns about what's being taught. And then, of course, the gaffe heard around the world. I don't think parents should be telling schools what to teach. It was so condescending. Yeah. And and a misunderstanding of everything that they were trying to tell him. And McAuliffe, to me, his his biggest mistake was believing what was true in 2013 and before when he ran for governor, obviously, and won. Teachers vote as a single voting block. And so winning that voting block can trump a whole lot of other things. Parents don't vote as a voting block. They vote based on the economy or mm-hmm. where they live or what um, socioeconomic you know, strata they're in. But if parents vote as a block, there are always more parents than teachers. <laughs> And he just missed that happening. And so he kept courting the teachers union. That's why Randy Weingarten was his closing pitch. (laughs) Amazing. Like if she was a Marvel character, her name would be School Closer. (laughs) And and that's who he's, you know, that's who he's running with. I mean, this is that that was just remarkable to me. And I I can't remember who tweeted this. I think it was Mary Catherine Hamm. She she basically said, look, we're going to under talk about the school closings. We're not going to talk enough about that, the school closings and the the budding and the building frustration around that, because I remember. And by the way, when those women are home out of the workforce, that means they're down to a single income and then inflation hits. Mm-hmm. And now you can't get your Christmas presents when you do. They're going to be a lot more expensive. The grocery stores don't have things There are supply chain issues everywhere and you weren't working. So now your family has less money. I mean. It's all education is the economy. Economy is education, and especially in Fairfax County. So I was going to say, I mean, not to steal time back from David, but uh, when you were talking about how all of these things sort of rely upon each other, like a Rube Goldberg machine, I was talking to somebody, a businessman yesterday, who was explaining the full depth and scope of the supply chain problem. And he was talking about, you don't understand. It's not just like this commodity is not available, whatever. The containers that bring the commodity aren't where they need to be to get the commodity. And so the spot price has gone up. Ten, you know, gone up a thousand percent. Blah blah. He goes, ran me through all this stuff. The supply chains were incredibly efficient with this on-time arrival stuff for years, and we took them for granted. We've been having this division of labor about moms and schools, as essentially it's analogous to the supply chain thing. Everyone just thought this was the natural way things work, but anybody who's had their kids' school close unexpectedly understands that it's like a supply chain disruption. All of a sudden, I can't be in two places at once. I got to be here. That means I can't go do this other thing, which means I can't get that thing to go to this place. And I think you're right. We, we, we you know, over-interpret, it, over-interpret the critical race theory part of it. But if it, but part of it is that it's sort of like a Mott and Bailey argument. Yeah. Where the they push really, really hard on ideological stuff. And the second it's questioned, they pull back and say, oh, so you just don't want, you don't want to teach about race? You don't want to <laughs> teach about slavery? And it's like, yeah. no, no, that's not what I was objecting to. And and the and I think that for a lot of parents, sort of to your point, they just were on autopilot about how politics works, about how voting works. They weren't think that the school stuff was convenient to their lives in ways that didn't make them pay attention to how their kids were schooled. And one of the things you didn't mention, Sarah, is not only is it like, are they home, are moms home disproportionately with the kids? The kids after 16 months of not going to school are now afraid to go back to school. And mom's mm. like, oh, crap. <laughs> I can't even get back to normal now, <laughs> right. right? And then to just and to be condescended to by a bad politician, and I think that's one of the weird things about McAuliffe. And I think, in many ways, this really David has a very good riff about why he's jealous of the name of my podcast being the Remnant, and about what the meaning of Remnant is because it both means the residual part and the opportunity for rebirth. Mm-hmm. 
this shows that the remnant of Clintonianism in the Democratic Party is both dead and now has an opportunity for rebirth. Because <laughs> McAuliffe should have been, a, like, McAuliffe could have dunked on teachers quite a bit and still yeah. gotten the teacher's vote. He could have said, you know, look, there are excesses and whatever, and we got, we all, it's all one country and, and, and school closures kind of got out of hand. It's not like, you know, Randy Weingarten is going to, damn, Terry threw me under the bus in a speech to parents. Now I'm going to have to vote for Yunkin. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. he, she understood that, you know, like Clinton did that all the time to people. And people understood that at the end of the day, when it came to policy, Clinton was going to get their back, but he had to like triangulate. Yeah. Triangulation is what would have saved McAuliffe in a heartbeat. And he just didn't, didn't, didn't think he should do it. Also, people calling that a gaffe, let's just be clear, it wasn't a gaffe. He didn't clean it up afterwards. He said, right. no, that's exactly what I meant. Right. And then, I mean, the weirdest interview was with a John Carl. Right. Yeah. I'm not even sure it was that. Because um, at least It was that, a talking point. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a talking yeah, 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 yeah. point. So he does this interview with John Carl of ABC afterwards. And not only does he double down, he says, everyone clapped in the room. <laughs> what? Yeah. That I mean, is a concerning response. It really seems to me that what the voters have been saying since 2020 is reaffirming the same message that they tried to give in 2020, which was stability, normality, make things go back to normal, please. So, you know, for that burst of moment, that burst of hope that we had before everything went to crap with the Stop the Steal stuff was, wait, hold on. Did the voters just eject Donald Trump and keep a Republican Senate probably in Georgia? Um, to say that, that we, there's going to be divided government, but there's going to be no Trump. So did did you thread the needle voters? Did you reject Trumpism, but also reject the far left at the exact same time? Then, of course, Trump nuked all that. And then here we go into 2020. And Biden, it seems to me, if you had, you know, like any understanding the of the political temperature in this country has a mandate to let's just be normal not revolutionary policy, not big, huge, bold moves. Let's just be normal. And then he goes and he completely does the opposite. Uh, and Afghanistan was a symbol of it because it was this giant, bold, buck-stopped-with-him move that just blew up in everybody's faces as anyone who knew anything about the area knew that it would. And then here are the voters again. Let's be normal. We haven't talked about Eric Adams yet from in New York, this this was a formality of an election. Of course, he was going to be mayor, but his election in the Democratic primary, let's be normal. Um, the defund the police initiative going down in Minneapolis, let's be normal. There's just this scream. And uh, I, I saw that Matt Iglesias said something. He said, everyone on the left has been saying now's the time for boldness, completely missing, completely missing. <laughs> Less boldness. On. Less boldness, please. More stability, please. I mean, just being the, whichever, I mean, we've been saying this for so long now, whichever party can just figure out how not to be the crazy party could be a majority party. Yeah. I and mean, just, just don't be the crazy party. And, and they're determined to give each party, the other party, the chance to seem less crazy than them. All right, Declan, let's talk about the other races. What else were you watching last night? I was watching uh, a lot of things that David just mentioned. Obviously, the the um, Eric Adams mayoral race resounding you victory. You weren't actually watching that. Nobody was actually watching to see the return. You were checking your phone while watching baseball. Come on, <laughs> come on. It scrolled, it scrolled across my screen. Yeah. There we and go. So I and I saw it. I wasn't watching. It. Um, but the 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 results out of Minneapolis, where uh, the incumbent mayor Jacob Fry was up for re-election after uh, a year and a half of kind of uh, conflicting criticism from both the, the far left of, of the Democratic Party over his uh, refusal to fully endorse uh, defunding the police and uh, some of his on the right uh, criticism that he gave too much credence to the idea that police needed to be reformed. Minneapolis uh, also being where George Floyd was killed. This was right, the epicenter correct. of where the protests started right. uh, last summer. Right. And uh, and so the, that race is uh, employing ranked choice voting, which I want to put a pin in and come back to uh, in, in a little bit. But uh, he's resoundingly uh, ahead. Looks like he's going to hang on. And then for the, the same voters to also resoundingly reject uh, a, a plan to replace the police with a 
uh, I believe, public safety department. <laughs> um, not entirely, I don't think even, even they fleshed out entirely what that would entail. But not the Jacobin Committee for Public Safety, right? I mean, yeah. no, not I would trust those guys with my life. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, they'll take it. <laughs> they'll take it. Yes. So, um, so that was a race that was very interesting. And then in Buffalo, we had a crazy uh, campaign where a um, a self-proclaimed democratic socialist, India Walton, uh, won the Democratic primary for the uh, mayoral race in Buffalo. And the incumbent mounted a write-in campaign to basically be like, eh, let's do this again. And 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 he won. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, you know, there have been instances of write-in campaigns working in the past at Lisa Murkowski in, in Alaska and I believe 2010 being the, the most recent example. But do you know what the other Senate race is to ever have won in a write-in candidacy? I don't, but I, I know, know you do. I know the answer, but I saw it in your tweet. So oh, it's 1954. Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond. Imagine the different history that we would have if he had simply lost that right in candidacy. My goodness. I know. Uh, yeah. 1954. He stayed, what, another 50 years? <laughs> yeah. He's exactly. still, he's still Fathered there. another <laughs> several children. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, you know, combined. Oh, and, and, and this very similar thing happened in C- Seattle. Far left, progressive Seattle. Not home of Antifa, but close by home of Antifa. Home of Chaz. Yes. Elected a Republican city attorney because the Democratic option was for police abolition. Um, and, and, and that is about like, that is about the only possible way that a Republican could get elected in a citywide race in Seattle um, is for uh, the alternative to just be so uh, crazy. And so um, I think that we are, see- you know, there are counterexamples because it's nature is healing but nature is healing right <laughs> yes. I and mean, that's the, the gist of it yes yeah. for me buffalo was everything that tab was up for me like before the virginia tab on my computer was up because if you wanted to have an experiment like as pure as you could have between the progressive wing and the moderate wing of the democratic party buffalo was a perfect setup for this yeah. because the progressives then have all the wind behind them her name is on the ballot the moderate's name is not on the ballot he spends $100,000 on little rubber stamps that he hands out to his supporters so that they don't have to write his name, although his name is Brian Brown. It was not particularly difficult to spell. Chitterelli or whatever the guy <laughs> yeah. in Jersey is. That's right. yeah. C-I. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so to have that pure of a election, yeah. and it wasn't close. And this yeah. is in a deep blue city, but a deep blue city that is more working class um, more, uh, you know, steel belt, but this is prime democratic territory. This is the, it's the Eastern end of the Rust Belt. Yeah. This is like where Joe Biden's voters in theory need to be. Joe Biden's voters are telling him who they are. Um, so that to me was by far more telling than actually Virginia was, because I do think Virginia had so many other local things going on. As you said, like, don't over-nationalize it, don't under-nationalize it. There's like a Goldilocks to yeah. go with Virginia. I feel like Buffalo was the race that taught well, me the most last night. Buffalo and Jersey. I mean, I take your point on yeah. Buffalo for all sorts of you know reasons. And the blow it strikes against the... I mean, the blow it strikes for the David Shore thesis is very strong. Yeah. Yes. Right? I was just going to um, say the name David Shore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pop- popularism had a good night last night. Yeah. And um, New Jersey has a 12-point swing from where it was just a year ago with Biden. Even when Yeah, I thought it was 16 points, but 12, was, 12 works. Okay. But either um, way... 12 in Virginia. 12 in Virginia, I thought it was 16, 16 in New if, Jersey. There, there's still votes to count. Look who but. got the numbers right. <laughs> Look who got the numbers wrong. And um, by the way, Cook Political Court uh, Report, Dave Wasserman has said that he has seen enough to call New Jersey for Murphy, uh-huh. but it is still only about 7,000 votes apart. Yeah, but that's uh, the point, right? It's like, you, and so we've talked about this a bunch. We pay too much attention to Virginia. It's where you live. I, I'm right across the water from it. Um, uh, it's basically the suburbs of most of the, DC pundit class. And so we take it more seriously than we probably should. At the same time, it's really kind of amazing. You know, on the commentary podcast, my friends, John Podoritz and and Noah Rothman, every now and then they talk about the the Jersey gubernatorial race. Noah Rothman lives in Jersey. Pod lives like right across the Hudson from it. And it's the same media market. And he, they always have to pay 
okay, so what's the Republican's name again? Yeah. They can't, you know, like, they, they can't even remember it. And for all the people who want to say Virginia was all about critical race theory and racist dog whistles, Jersey wasn't. No. Right? And it, so you can't have a 16-point swing in the most suburban state in the country, I believe Jersey is, and um, that went massively for Biden and say, oh, the only way Republicans won in these off-year elections is because of these various culture war issues and all the rest. Some of it has to do with the thermostatic, you know, nature of the stuff because like Jersey, Jersey Democrats don't repeat, um, or don't get reelected or whatever, but there's just a, there is a national trend to some extent that just shows that there's, there's space between the, the, the suburban voters, typical Republican suburban voters who would not vote for Trump, but are still willing to vote for other Republicans. And it sort of jives with Raffenberger's, you know, he's going around talking about the numbers in, in Georgia these days. And he's just like, you know, Trump underperformed Purdue. There were in Fulton County, it was like 28,000 people just didn't fill in the top ballot for president. Yeah. You know, there are people like, and so there's going to be a big fight to see whether or not this diminishes Trump or not as a power in the party. I know we're not supposed to say these two words together in the presence of Sarah after Beetlejuice. No. Exit polling. Exit polling. <laughs> Get out. Yeah, we're not supposed to say that. But with all of the... Cap How about egress surveys? Would that work? <laughs> yes, there we go. The egress surveys that are imprecise, imprecise, indicated that Trump was still seriously underwater with Virginia voters right. and Youngkin was not. That Youngkin had a positive rating and Trump had a profoundly negative rating. Uh, Trump, of course, then tried to take credit for Youngkin's victory. There's which, by the way, this was really interesting in the exit polling, which of course I looked at. I just don't like <laughs> absorb it. The fave unfave that Youngkin had was incredible. I believe, you know, something around 53 fave, 44 unfave. Uh, McAuliffe was exactly flipped. 44 fave, 53 unfave. If you look at the ads McAuliffe was running that were all against Trump and not really about Youngkin. Yeah. Yep. Congratulations, Terry McAuliffe. You kept Donald Trump's fave on fave underwater in Virginia right. and you didn't touch Youngkin. Well, so this is just raising a question. How much of this was a product of these, you know, the Democrats not being nimble, taking taking these macro narratives for granted and not actually looking at the granular stuff? And one of the the macro narratives was Gavin Newsom ran against Trump in the recall like six months ago or three months ago. Time's a flat circle. It happened recently. I can't remember when. And um, uh, and they took from that that they could do to Yunkin what Newsom did to Larry Elder, right? And so like Larry Elder is a 25-year talk radio talk host. radio yeah. caricature, right? I'm not saying he's a horrible person, but you know, he he's he's it's not hard to lump him with Trumpiness. Yeah. Right. And 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 Yunkin is a is the guy who brings the extra Starbucks to the kids' soccer game, right? I mean, he's like, he's a milk toast. Elder never had a coherent message like Youngkin did either. Yeah. He never settled. You he know, wasn't a real candidate the way Youngkin Young did. To talk is... to the Youngkin team, by the way, um, and they made some interesting points, but one of which was Terry McAuliffe was running something like 12 different ads, totally different than the ones he was running six months ago. Glenn Youngkin was still running the same ad he was running six months ago, and they were only running four ads. Mm. That focus on a message, I think, did them some good. I mean, Youngkin has far more in common with Mitt Romney than he has with any other wing of the Republican Party. I mean, he's what, what he was what chairman of the Carlisle Group. I mean, this is this is your big business Republican figure who ran a simple and compelling message and. You know, this go. Let me go back to David Shore for a minute, and his emphasis on the Democrats are their activist classes too young, too online. You know, one of the things if I'm if I'm in the Democratic Party right now, and I'm and I'm thinking about running a campaign, one of the things I might tell my whole staff is I want to see your phones and I want to see Twitter not on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just remove that app, and now let's talk to real people.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Let's. That's a nice segue. Um, let's talk about what Republicans should take away from what we learned last night. I have two big things. All right. One, high turnout is not bad for Republicans. And it right. doesn't guarantee a Democratic victory either. But. Republicans seem so focused on passing voting restrictions across the country because I I don't think it's, you know, actually race-based in the traditional sense. Uh, I think it's race-based in the sense that they think that people of color don't vote for them. But uh, they overall believe that high turnout only is good for Democrats. No, this was record turnout for Yunkin. And by the way, even look at 2020, the high turnout helped Donald Trump. Yes, it wasn't enough to push him over. Um, And so this idea that you're going around trying to make it harder for people to vote because you have this weird idea that Republican voters are smarter or more able to jump through hoops than Democratic voters (laughs) is a that is kind of a weird uh, takeaway because I I mean, very anecdotal, obviously, Uh, a Republican voter I know recently moved to Virginia and they don't have same day voter registration in Virginia, so she couldn't vote for Youngkin. No, as it turned out, Youngkin didn't need her vote. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, if as the parties shift and as the Republican Party starts picking up more non-college educated white voters, blue collar voters, making it harder for them to vote is shooting yourself in the foot. And again, not because they're not smart enough to figure it out. It's because it's a bunch of hoops to jump through. Right. And at some point you're like, this ain't worth it. The juice ain't worth the squeeze. OK, so that's one high turnout can be good for Republicans. It can be bad for Democrats. Two, when you make it a referendum on Donald Trump, Republicans lose. When you don't have it as a referendum on Donald Trump, it becomes a referendum on something else. In this case, a referendum on Joe Biden's policies or on school closures or on who knows. And that can help Republicans. But if you go back to making it a referendum on Donald Trump in 2024, Mm -hmm. Do not expect those same suburban women who just had a 15-point swing in Virginia to stay with you because it's a very different thing you're asking them. Yeah. it's And it seems like Democrats learned this lesson several years ago when they were running in the midterms in 2018, and it was just health care. Everybody would ask, reporters would ask, are you going to impeach Trump? Are you going to? And they're like, I don't know. Health care. I don't know. Health care. And, mm-hmm. and it was the only thing that candidates would talk about. And they won, what, 60 seats, something like that in, in, in the 2018 midterms. And then they kind of regressed since then and started falling for these easy traps. And obviously, a lot's happened since 2018 that is worth talking about January 6th. Um, you know, the first impeachment trial, all these other things. But it, it kind of traps Democrats in the sense that they think because we're as outraged by this that everybody must be. And and so if we talk about this nonstop, it will remind people that the Republican Party hasn't yet been punished for Trump and for his misdeeds. And so, you know, it it was actually interesting. And it, I think we'll get to this later. But um, reading the intra-Democratic Party sniping that was happening last night um, was was incredibly fascinating. One, because um, usually it's the it, over the past four years, it's been. The, the Republicans uh, shooting each other behind the scenes. But, um, you know, it, the moderates and the progressives both agree we should not have been talking about Donald Trump this much. The alternative to that is that there wasn't much for McAuliffe to run on besides Donald Trump. And that that might be an even scarier proposition for Democrats in that, um, you know, Biden, I, I, I think this is correct, Biden has the lowest uh, net approval rating of any president dating back to like Calvin Coolidge at this point in his presidency, save Donald Trump and and maybe Gerald Ford. And that's just in a, in a race that's so nationalized. And 
And I think McAuliffe, uh, several times during the campaign, made a point to nationalize it. You know, he brought in Biden, he brought in Harris, he brought in Barack Obama um, for all these events. He wanted to get voters fired up, but fired up about what exactly? Like, what what is the point that you're nationalizing it for? And I don't think the the party really thought that far ahead where we'll we'll get all of our voters excited and they'll all turn out for us and but they didn't ask why they didn't give really give voters a reason why to turn out is it because of inflation is it because of the afghanistan withdrawal is it because of this these kind of amorphous bills that have not been passed yet and don't necessarily look like they're they're headed that way now after today and so um it'll be interesting to see kind of what what shakes out uh and and how this uh, shapes the the internal Democratic fights on, on that side. David, what are the takeaways for Republicans? Number one, you don't need Donald Trump on the ticket to turn out rural voters. I think that's a big I think that's a big win. Yeah, because, huge turnout in Virginia was really an interesting. Yeah. Like point for that. Yeah. And because this has sort of been the message that the the Trump rider dies. See, I'm I'm using the term correctly that you taught me. <laughs> Um, Sarah, you're that, my rider died. <laughs> the Trump rider dies have been saying the only way, the only way to get this turnout is through Trump or Trumpism. Youngkin is not a Trump is not Trump. He's not Trumpism. And the rural voters came out. They came out big time. And the other thing is one of the things that I try to do when I think about elections is I try to think about what are the things that everyone is sort of experiencing what are sort of the universal experiences of the moment? Forget the Twitter fights, forget the social media fights or the cable news hits. What are the universal experiences? So 08, economic crash. Um, you know, 2012, steady improvement. You know, remember uh, Obama saying GM is alive and Osama bin Laden is dead. Uh, 2020, what was everybody experiencing? Everybody experienced it was a, there was a pandemic, yes, but they were the voters were pretty remarkably forgiving of elected officials and how they were sort of navigating, especially in those earlier waters. But everybody was experiencing Donald Trump and experiencing his presence on the national stage. Now, what is everybody experiencing? Supply chain bottlenecks in lots of parts of the country, um, halting school reopenings, uh, a military defeat that has just stared us in the face. Like all of these things that are kind of the things that everybody is experiencing regardless of your online or offline status, are really negative for the Democrats right now. They're really negative. And if I'm Joe Biden, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how is it by this time next year, can I make sure that when somebody orders something, they get it? Like that's about as basic as you can get. When they order something, they get it like they could get it in 2019. Because there's this weird feeling. I've literally had people say this to me amongst all of the, the supply chain stuff and how hard it is to get things. Somebody said to me, and this stuck with me, it doesn't feel like America. And in this kind of way that we're used to stuff. It, it's it's and I understood, I understood what he meant. This is an unusual new experience for us. And we're talking about this build back better thing that nobody even knows what's in it. And that's bottlenecking Congress. I mean, so I think that this this question about what is it that everybody's going through and what is Washington doing about it? None of that's working for the Democrats right now. The only thing where I kind of disagree with you is I don't. When you say Republicans don't need Trump to turn out the rural vote. I'm not sure that's entirely right. Republicans need Trump not to suppress the rule. Mm. I mean, if Trump had said, oh, he's part of the swamp, right? He's he's a rhino, squish, blah, blah, blah. Totally blah. agree. It would have suppressed that vote considerably. And it was Trump staying out of the race. Yeah. Right, like, and, and like, which I'm not sure he'll do in 2022. Mm. Like, I'm right. not, I, because he won't get credit for Youngkin's win, he may try to take credit, but he won't get credit for Not it. internally, right. Right. Yeah he will learn a lesson from that too. And so trying to do a Yunkin in 2022, Trump may just demand more. more. Yeah, mm. I think that's right. And so in like, he kind of followed the, the political Hippocratic oath of first do no harm. Right. And he can do a lot of friggin' harm. And, um, and so I think it, like Donald Trump would not let, let's say Doug Ducey were running for Senate, which is something he should do. Yeah. Um, he wouldn't let Doug Ducey, he wouldn't let the rural vote turn out for Doug Ducey. He'd rather take 
Doug Ducey's scalp. And, um, and so, th- I mean, th- it's sort of a macro version of this, you know, Republicans can't win with Trump and they can't win without him dynamic. Like if, if, if he, w- if he actually cared about the Republican party, um, he could really help turn out voters where Republicans need them and really help not suppress voters where Republicans need them. And for, but you know, more broadly than that, I'm a broken record. Just don't be crazy. Just seriously, just don't, I mean, like people don't, 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 people have so much drama in their lives over the last five years that the parm, the par, and that was one of Barack Obama's great gifts. He didn't actually deliver it as a matter of policy, but as a matter of style and presence, no drama Obama right. was very attractive to a lot of people, particularly for the first African-American president. And, and I think that was one of the things that was very attractive about Biden was like this sense, oh, it's grandpa, you know, he's going to sit on the porch and whittle most of the time like a Bartles and James guy. While competent. While competent. Well, and the, the competent thing got all blown up. I do think that the competent numbers, I mean, this is a little far afield, and I don't want to be uncharitable about it. I don't think he has dementia. I don't think, you know, he's a basket case or anything like that stuff. But a lot of Americans, they just see a few clips of the guy from time to time. And all you need is a few clips. And then you see how he screwed up Afghanistan. You see these other things. And I don't think it's like anti, it's ageist bigotry or anything like that. We all know people in our families and our lives, some of whom are very old, who are like super sharp and some of whom are not. And I do think that competent to some extent numbers are in some, to some extent, not entirely driven by in part that. So I have a theory on a problem that Democrats have that is not easily solved. David, you touched on it a little with the Twitter thing. And the problem is not just Twitter. Because Twitter actually is pretty easy. You just tell people not to pay attention to Twitter. You show them the numbers that Twitter is not representative. Um, You know, on my profile, I have pinned. Pew Research found that of the fewer than 50 million U.S. adults on Twitter, only 6% of those Twitter users account for 73% of the tweets about national politics. That means fewer than 1% of Americans are weighing in on Twitter about politics. Great. Ignore Twitter. But there's a bigger problem. And I think actually both sides have a very different asymmetrical part of this. And that is the pundit class on cable news, of which I sort of consider all of us. Right. (laughs) Uh, For the right, they're too centrist in terms of representing the party. Most of the Republican pundits are coming from a, you know, operative class that is actually far more moderate than the whole, the party as a whole. On the Democratic side, however, the pundit class as a whole is far, far, far to the left of the median Mm -hmm. Democratic voter. And so there's a huge asymmetry where the entire pundit class is to the left of the median American voter. But for Democrats, it's a particular problem because it's not just Twitter. It's also the media, which does have an effect on approval numbers, on what's getting attention. And so, for instance, to your point, David, which I think is spot on, Joe Biden should be exclusively talking about what he's doing to fix supply chain issues before Christmas. Mm-hmm. And instead, they're spending all their time talking about a $3.5 trillion or a $1.75 trillion social safety net bill. Why? Because some of that's being driven by the fact that the majority, I would say, of Democratic strategists that appear on TV are not from the moderate wing of the party. Right. Um, I just, you know, I think of my own example last night on ABC and um, it was the head of the progressive, it wasn't the, the justice Democrats, but, you know, she was the head of the progressive wing outside group. And like, yeah, they're going to have very different takeaways from last night's election than David Shore, for instance, who I don't see on cable news. No, I mean, look, I, I, I tuned into MSNBC, you know, in lieu of cutting myself. And <laughs> um, it was it was Joy Reid, Nicole Wallace and Rachel Maddow. And oh, that's so perfect. Nicole Wallace represents Republicans, even though she is center left at best. Right. Uh, Joy Reid is to the far, far left. Right. And, and Rachel Maddow is sort of like technocratic, hyper liberal, you know, and they could not, I would put it this way, poor Chris Hayes had to come in and be, open himself up to charges of mansplaining (laughs) to say that there were other contributory reasons for why McAuliffe lost other than simply racism. And he wasn't denying the racism stuff. He was just saying, well, you know, 
it's you know it, it, the normal default is that the coming you know that the party out of the party in power suffers in in Virginia elections and then you add in all the racism and it makes it even worse i mean like it was astounding and i got into a fight with some people on twitter about it and it's not like i think charges of racist dog whistles are completely out of bounds i mean you can make the case for them they're just not really explanatory beyond a certain point and if you fall into the mode, which I saw a lot on, on TV and on NPR in the last 24 hours, if you fall into the mode of picking a monocausal explanation that casts you in the most virtuous light possible and the people you disagree with in the most evil light possible, maybe psychology is working more here than like real serious political analysis. You know, I mean, like, it's like, oh, of course, the people who, because like there's something Declan said earlier about the Democrats, which I think kind of got a little off, which is like, you know, you said how the Democrats are assume everyone is outraged about X the same way that they are. And I agree that's happening, but there's an added psychological dynamic. It's that they then leap from, not only are they wrong about the level of outrage out there. They leap from the assumption that everybody is outraged about this stuff the same way they are. And if they're not, it must be because they are pro January 6th insurrection Klansmen who eat puppies on a regular basis, right? I mean, it can't possibly be that they're just wrong or that they're concerned about other things, you know? And I think huge numbers of Republican voters out there, which is one of the things I think Republicans should take away from this, it's... A lot of people out there are, a lot of Republicans out there are embarrassed by Trump the same way they're embarrassed by their uncle. But they'll be damned to have somebody outside the family insult their uncle. People mm -hmm. are a little Irish about it. They don't want to be reminded, no offense, Declan. They don't want to be reminded <laughs> that, you know, they've got these guys, you know, on their team or that they, they, they made apologies for this guy. And so they just rather him kind of like, be in the background, but if you if you rile them up, they're going to come to his defense, and they're going to take offense when you say that you're an evil person if you voted for the guy, or if you're not as outraged about him as other people are. Come for the politics, stay for the Irish slurs. Declan, <laughs> what's the future of Build Back Better, the Democratic agenda in the short term? Uh, yes, yeah, so so with regards to to Build Back Better, I think there's kind of two different. Um, approaches Democrats can can take to this. And it, it kind of reminds me, honestly, of uh, something that that we've talked about on this podcast before in the past with uh, the, the Chinese and, and respect to Taiwan, not that there's any, you know, any moral equivalence or whatnot. But um, the Chinese, if, if they whether they see that they're on the rise and they think that they have the capability to invade Taiwan or they think that they're you know, they're declining, their their population's getting older, and now is the time to take Taiwan because they're not going to be able to soon. There's kind of something similar going on here with the Democratic Party and this Build Back Better agenda. If they see the writing on the wall, like, we're going to lose the next election really, really, really badly, uh, we better pass this stuff now because we might not be back in power, unified control of the government for four years, six years, eight years, you know, and, and so you kind of start getting down that road. At the same time, uh, a, re a real reason that they're in the position that they're in is because they are doing things like trying to pass a $3 trillion spending bill. Um, and so you had, uh, you had David Axelrod, obviously a, a Democratic consultant who was uh, very close to the Obama administration on CNN last night, was making a point that you know if, if you're a Democrat on, on Capitol Hill and you're in one of these swing districts, are you, you know, now going to back off this reconciliation package, which was already barely being hung together and, and you know, relied on the whims of, of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Um, if you start getting more people kind of falling into that lane, and there, I, I think there's always been more opposition to this stuff than has been let on publicly. I think that Manchin and, and Sinema are kind of taking one for the team there uh, because they can. But you might start to see this crumble pretty quickly if, uh, you know, a lot of people start looking out for themselves like, oh, that could be me in a, a year from today. You know, one thing, Declan, that you say, I think that it's a real I, I think this is really true and insightful into the psychology of a lot of folks in the Democratic Party, which is they feel like the structure of the Constitution itself is leaning strongly against them. 
so that even though they have more people, uh, as has been evidenced by the fact that the Republicans have won one popular vote for president since 1992, which is a a pretty crazy thing. I mean, since 1988, since 1988. Wow, even worse, which is a pretty crazy thing to contemplate. So a lot of them think we have a giant structural disadvantage so that when we're in power, we got to do stuff. But the, the reality is the vast majority of presidential elections aren't about radicalism at all. It's more like, you know, this title of this book that, uh, you know, Jonah's friend, Cass Sunstein, it's called Nudge. It's much more about nudge. What is a subtle push in one direction or a subtle course correction? It's not so much about something super radical at all. And then when you overinterpret a narrow victory into radical change, you're completely misreading the room. And so there, this, this sort of panic that we can't do it again, combined with sort of the euphoria that always accompanies a political victory, it says, look at us, um, is creating a, a dynamic where they're completely misreading the room. And and the thing is, I think they'll probably go back to misreading the room a few days from now. Both sides. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. Um, I haven't released either yet, but I did a video yesterday for AI with Jay Cost, who's a historian who just has a book out coming out soon on it's a biography of James Madison. And then we did a long remnant about Madison as well. And one of the points he makes about Madison that I think is kind of, I mean, like I understood it beforehand, but it, like the emphasis on it, it kind of clicked for me, which is, you know, the whole design of our system is contra flight 93 ism. Yeah. Right. It's like every time someone says the most important election in our history, we always joke, yeah, okay, until the next one, right? Mm -hmm. But that's, in fact, the Madisonian design, which is that the way you get buy-in and you make progress is it's a bunch of short passes from one election to another election. Um, that was a nod to, to fantasy football commissioner here. And, you know, and you just, you try to gain a few yards with every election, and then you move on to the next one. And that way you get consent of the governed, you get regional buy-in, um, because you are having, you're not just having elections for president, you're having 435 elections for Congress. You're having hundred or 33 elections every two years for Senate. And then on the state and local level, local level, every basically year, there are thousands or hundred or at least hundreds of people up for election. And it's a constantly unfolding thing where people are having arguments and you're supposed to like weigh in as a voter and, or as a politician on things. But we've convinced people that in this sort of mythological parliamentary system that we don't live in that th this one election is our one shot to to fulfill all of our dreams right and and so you you and that makes you really reluctant to compromise on little things because there is no tomorrow ever and and that's what's i think killing the democrats on this stuff it's why trump was elected it's why obama was elected um each party that gets in they swing for the fences because they think this is their last chance to take advantage of power and and then there's a backlash against them for doing it and then the other side gets in and does the same thing from the other direction and it's it's very anti-Madisonian. All right, last quick question for each of you. What did you learn last night that changed what you think is going to happen in 2022? In short, David, I'll start with you. Nothing. And what <laughs> because you <laughs> Okay, I did want a short answer. I did say that. Uh, <laughs> because you think that neither party will change what they're going to well, do? No, I think the dynamics are so strongly running towards Republicans, and I don't have confidence that the Biden administration will shift course considerably. And I also, by the way, don't have a huge amount of confidence that the the kinds of supply chain problems are are so easy to fix that you can just sort of say, okay, now I'm going to focus on this and this is going to be solved. So, so you think I, Republicans win the House and the Senate if the election were held today type thing? I think if the election were held today, the Republicans win the House and the Senate. But a lot can happen. It's sure. just that to yesterday's events don't change that dynamic. Jonah? Yeah, I, I generally agree with that. I do think that like the point you were making earlier, Sarah, about 
how Trump could respond to all of this in ways that are unhelpful to the Republicans <laughs> in 2022 seems very high. Like he can't he. It turns out telling your voters to vote was a more successful strategy than telling your voters <laughs> not to vote. We did learn that last night. It is weird. Wow. And, I know. Um, wow. Hot yeah. take. But very undispatchy. Right. But becomes very difficult. Like, you know, Trump prefers positive attention, but he'll take negative attention over no attention. And uh, the less he there has to be a certain amount of flop sweat panic in Trump world about how the lesson a lot of Republicans are taking from this is, oh, you just you just don't talk about Trump very much as long as Trump isn't on the ballot. You know, I mean, got to go back and remember that that 2018 press conference where Trump literally said that like Mia Love lost because she didn't embrace Donald Trump. Right. I mean, like he likes taking credit for Republicans losing a lot more than taking credit for Republicans winning if it's not clearly the result of his endorsement. So I, I would expect more headaches for Kevin McCarthy and those guys from Donald Trump than the current euphoric mood suggests. Declan. This might be a little bit of a bank shot, but I think that this, at, at the Republican operative level, really, really, really drills down how important the primaries are going to be in, in the coming uh, months and, and over the next year because Glenn Youngkin was the only Republican that would have won this race. There were there were other candidates running. Uh, Pete Snyder, also a businessman who was far more aligned with Trump than Youngkin was. And then there's... The Trump uh, and Heels woman? That's, yeah, yeah, Amanda Chase, who um, what self-described Trump and Heels. Um, and Which is just not a great image. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't... People like what they like, but um, <laughs> but there, there's kind of this this um, real threat that if you nominated Amanda Chase, uh, like McAuliffe would have won by six percent, we wouldn't have been having this kind of referendum that we're that we're having, and that and that changes the entire tenor of the next year. And so, if you're doing that, if you're playing this out you know, hundreds of races across the country in the Senate and the House, um, can Republicans be disciplined enough to nominate a Yunkin in these races? And what's what's an, I mean, the, an answer to the, that? Come on. the answer is no, <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but something interesting about how Yunkin was nominated in the first place because of COVID restrictions, uh, but might have actually been, you know, some some smoke filled rooms shenanigans, which, you know, uh, more power to you, but um, <laughs> this was a ranked choice convention in May on like a Saturday where only a couple thousand people were able to show up and vote. And it took Yunkin six rounds of ranked choice voting to pass the 50% threshold and, and secure the nomination. Like this was going to be an Amanda Chase nomination if it was a open primary Republicans, rah, rah, we're still right. mad about January 6th. We're going to show it. And they, it would have fallen flat on their faces. And so I wonder if this kind of spurs a either either a recollection or, or a recognition among uh, operatives that and, and party leaders that maybe we maybe we should be a little less democratic in the in these primary nominations um, or among voters themselves being like, we can accept a Yunkin who might not have been our first. Nobody remembers that he wasn't their first choice right. back in May, but he wasn't. Um, and look how it turned out. We yeah. got this big victory. And so uh, that will require a lot of discipline that I don't have any confidence that that we have. But it's an interesting thing to play out uh, over the next couple. That's months. a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because the one of the big threats to Republicans in 2022 is the primary process. Um, to be quite frank. And what we did not have a conventional primary process that yielded Youngkin. And so now everyone is hailing Youngkin as a model for the future. And he came up despite the move at the grassroots and amongst sort of the core primary voters in the GOP, not because of them. And I think that's going to be something interesting to think about going forward. And with that, um, the Astros lost the World Series. I am from Houston. Um, surprisingly, I was I was okay with it. I feel like I think I'm the only Houstonian who was deeply upset and felt totally betrayed 
by what happened last time around. Um, I grew up listening to AM baseball radio with my dad. And so like, you know what? You earned that loss, Astros. But now, slate is clean. <laughs> slate is clean. You have paid your penance. That's right. <laughs> Do not listen to producer Caleb. He <laughs> has the worst takes. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate all your support. Don't forget to tell your friends about us and, uh, and mention it as you're talking about the election at your water cooler, etc. We'll talk to you soon. I've got around my table here, David French, Jonah Goldberg. Mm, Goldberg. I think I said that wrong. I think I left out the R. <laughs> yeah, I, I just chalked it up to the usual casual anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.